0: Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a special invitation to come out tonight. Now, if we didn't sing one of your favorite carols this morning, we'll have the opportunity this evening at our Christmas music night for you to be able to pick out some of your favorite carols. There'll also be some special music. Just looking for a great time of worshiping the Lord in song this evening as we celebrate the coming of the Savior. Romans chapter 3 begins with verse 1. We'll read through verse 8. It says, What advantage then has the Jew? What's the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words, and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust, who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say? Their condemnation is just. Through the years, there have been all kinds of arguments about how Christmas should be celebrated or if Christmas should be celebrated at all, Uh, whether Christmas should be celebrated on December 25th or in January sometime like the Orthodox Church does, whether uh, trees, Christmas trees and gifts should be part of our celebration, whether the celebration should take place on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. It's amazing the things that people find to argue about, isn't it? But I'm just thankful this morning that our salvation does not depend on the way that we celebrate Christmas or any other elements of religion. The last part of Romans chapter 2 declares very clearly that neither religious knowledge or religious rituals or religious heritage are sufficient to make a man right with God and gain him entrance into heaven. Not even the religious knowledge, rituals, and heritage of the Jews who are identified in the Old Testament as the people of God. Paul anticipates here in chapter 3 arguments from the Jews concerning his shattering attack upon their self-righteous trust in their religious knowledge rituals, and heritage. Uh, Paul had had taught these truths, really, many places and and many different times, and he'd had people argue with him, I'm sure. And here in his writing of this letter, he anticipates and, and records for us the arguments that people raise when you tell them that religion's not enough to get you into heaven, even the Jewish religion or even the Christian religion is not enough to get you into heaven. And here in the first part of chapter 3, he records three arguments that he anticipates uh, along with his Holy Spirit-directed response to those arguments. Uh, First of all, argument concerning the benefits of the Jews, and we might even put in there people professing to be Christians. Arguments concerning the unbelief of the Jews or unbelief of professing Christians. And lastly, concerning the judgment of Jews, or really anybody else who uh, turns their back on Jesus Christ. We find that, uh, first of all, the, the questions asked in, in verse 1, uh, Paul has just explained very, very clearly in, in chapter 2 that the, the Jewish right of circumcision, the, the, just the fact the Jews had the scriptures, uh, just the fact that they, they were descendants of Abraham, that was not going to get them into heaven. Uh, no religion, no religious rituals, no religious activities, no religious belief for that matter are, are going to get people into heaven. And so the, the, he anticipates the question from a Jewish person, well, well what's the advantage of the, the, that the Jew has then? And that's an understandable question because if you go back to the Old Testament, who do you find the Old Testament's all about once you get to Genesis chapter 12? It's all about Israel, isn't it? It's all about the Jewish people. Abraham and his descendants. It's all through there, all through the whole Old Testament. and God spells out that the Jews really are His chosen people. He called Abraham of all the people on the earth, and that day he called Abraham to work through him. Elsewhere in Scripture we find out that it says in Exodus 19:6 it says to the nation of Israel, "And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy ten, fourteen, and 15. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples, as it is this day. And we could go on and cite other passages of Scripture where God makes it very clear that Israel, the Jewish people... The nation of Israel has a very special place in God's program, very special place in God's eye. In fact, sometimes we might wonder today, there is so much interest in that little nation over there in the Middle East that's no bigger than the size of the state of New Jersey, and you've got all these people that, are, that are really want to fight over that piece of property, get the Jews out of that land. One of the biggest issues for the, the leaders of our country is What's our stance going to be concerning Israel? Are are we going to support their right to exist as a nation? Or are we going to abandon them? Many other nations are abandoning Israel. and said, no, let the Palestinian people, let the Arabs have that country. Why is there so much interest in that group of people? Why did Hitler single out the Jewish people to persecute and murder 6 million of them? Well, the the, the general answer is the fact that it's a spiritual thing. There's a spiritual battle there, and the nation of Israel has been God's chosen nation ever since He called Abraham and gave him promises of land, seed, and blessing, and promised that the Messiah was going to come into this world, the Savior was going to come into this world through the Jewish people, and, and Satan and, and the world has been battling against Israel ever since that that time, and the the question comes well. If, if we're supposed to have this special role in God's eyes, and you're telling us that our heritage is, is not going to get us right with God, it's not, gonna, it's not enough to be a child of Abraham or a descendant of Abraham. It's not enough to go through circumcision for Jewish males. It, it's not enough just to know about God from the Old Testament. Then what's the advantage in being Jewish? What's the advantage of being a Jew? What, what, what makes us special? What, what, what's, what's the deal here? And the fact of the matter is, Paul goes on and says there are many advantages. There are many advantages to the Jew. Uh, we, we find that uh, God has worked through them in amazing fashion. You go back and you read the, the, the Old Testament and see how God took care of them, bringing them out of Egypt, opening up the Red Sea so that they could, they could come through the Red Sea. Uh, we find he establishes David as their, their, their king after Saul failed so miserably. Uh, he gives them great victories in entering into the, the promised land. God raised up prophets to them. They, they had many, many advantages, many, many blessings. And eventually the Messiah came to Israel. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. Where's Bethlehem? That's in Israel. The Messiah came through, to and through the Jewish people. So he, he, he says there's many advantages for the Jewish people. God made covenants with Abraham and Moses and David. There are kingdom promises that God said one of these days Israel is going to have a golden kingdom on this earth that's going to be ruled over by the Lord Jesus. There are many advantages, Paul says that, but but then he zeroes in on one. Says your biggest advantage, biggest advantage for Israel is they have the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? Well, the thing he's spelling out here is the fact that there is a God. And that God has revealed himself to men. God has spoken. If I could assure you tonight that God was going to deliver a message that you were going to be able to hear on our audio system, here tonight at 6 o'clock you're going to hear directly from the voice of God. God's going to tell you he wants you to hear. How many of you would come back for sure for that? and I'm telling you know if I were telling it you knew I was telling the truth how many we'd want to hear God wouldn't we we'd want to hear what God has to say well that's not going to happen tonight you can still come back and we'll sing but God has spoken there is a God and he has revealed himself and he's revealed himself primarily to Jewish prophets God has told us about how he created the world. God has told us about himself. God's told us what our biggest problem is, the sin problem. God has spoken. God has given tremendous promises about what's going to happen in the future. He gave Israel promises that that were going to happen in their future, and, and we have the great vantage point right now. We can look at the promises, and we can also look at the pages of history, and we can see how God fulfilled his promises perfectly and really one of the most exciting things about Christmas is the fact that God prophesied it God told us I was going to he said in Micah chapter 5 that it was going to be the 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 Messiah was going to come where to Bethlehem of Judea prophesied his birth in Bethlehem prophesied much about his ministry prophesied about his resurrection prophesied about his coming back as king of kings and lord of lords israel has the scriptures israel has the, the bible that was tremendous the greatest advantage they had god had spoken and they had to down in written form what god had said somebody might ask today well what's what's the benefit of being around church you know what, what's the benefit of of uh, being around Christians, even even trying to be a Christian, if, if religion's not going to get you into heaven. Well, what's, what's the benefit? Well, the big thing is, one of the most important things about being gathered here in this place today or any other Bible-believing church is you know what we got going for us? We have here what God has said. God has spoken. He's not going to bring it through the loudspeaker tonight or this morning. But he's spoken to us in this book and we have the wonderful wonderful blessing and privilege to consider what God has to say to us in the Bible he tells us about ourselves he tells us about himself he tells us about the future he tells us about what our most important problem is and what he has done for it and we have tremendous opportunity if you were brought up in a Christian home and the Bible had a special place in your home and the Bible was read in your home Man, you've got a great advantage. You've got a great benefit in your life. What a blessing that is. If, you're part of, if you've are if you been taken to a, a Bible-believing church, what a blessing. What an advantage. But let me make sure you know something here this morning. With greater opportunity, you know what comes? Greater responsibility. When you know the truth, you're responsible to do something with that truth. And you don't walk away from God's truth unchanged. Either you believe his truth and you respond to his truth and you submit to his truth or you reject it and you harden yourself against his truth. And one of the standards that God uses in judging is the kind of light that people have, the amount of light that we have. We find that the greater greater opportunity, greater knowledge brings greater responsibility and it brings greater judgment. In James 3, James says, don't, don't many of you be teachers because when you become a teacher for to be a teacher of God's truth, teachers get the greater judgment. That, that's, those are solemn words for me. And, I, and I'm not a teacher or a preacher because it's something I just decided to do on my own. I think God really directed my life to bring me this way. And I realize I've, I've got greater responsibility than you folks because I, I've spent all week pouring over the Word of God. And I've given my life to study in the Word of God. And I've got the awesome responsibility that when I tell you this is what the Bible says, I better be right. Because if I'm not accurate, I'm responsible for that before God. And God forbid that I could, should lead somebody astray. I better be careful that when I present something as God's truth, that it really is God's truth. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, and he says, You search the Scriptures. Uh, thinking in them you're going to find eternal life he says, i want you to know the scriptures speak about me the scriptures speak of me so when we study the word of god we we get into the scriptures one of the things we better see there is we better see jesus we better see the savior we better see the messiah we better see that we need a savior and that god has provided a savior and th- that jesus is that savior there's tremendous advantage for the Jews having the, the Old Testament scriptures, and there's tremendous advantage for anybody that's around a, a Bible-teaching church or a Bible-teaching family. Uh, those, those religion religion won't get you into heaven. No religious practices, uh, no amount of religious knowledge. You're not going to be given a, a test when you stand before God. Uh, with a hundred questions on it and if you get a 98 you get to come in but man if you get anything less than that forget that's not what it's about when it comes to being accepted by God and getting into heaven it's all about a relationship with Jesus Christ and the scripture should be directing our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and we should be responding to him and surrendering to him so we find that the argument of the Jew what, what benefit is there in being a Jew what benefit is there and being in a church, if going to church isn't going to get you to heaven, why bother being there? Well, because we center on God's Word. And we take the truth of God's Word. And we know what God has said. We know what God's told us about Himself and about ourselves. that We're sinners in need of a Savior. What He's told us about heaven. What He's told us about eternity. What He's told us about the, the basic condition of man. The basic condition of man being sinful, needing a Savior. We find another question comes up then. And that's an argument concerning the unbelief of the Jews. You know, the the Jews have the scriptures. Uh, They they had the scriptures, and and we find that they they should have, they should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah when he came the first time. But a, a reality is that when Jesus came the first time, what happened? He was rejected, he was crucified. They didn't recognize him as being the Messiah promised through all all the Old Testament prophecies. They they rejected him. And and today, many Jews reject God's God's promises, God's prophets, and God's word. And uh, we find the scripture tells us one of these days, all Israel is going to be saved. The Bible tells us that one of these days, a kingdom, glorious kingdom for Israel is going to be set up on this earth. But that's not today. If you go to Jesus Christ, if you go to Israel today, you will not find Jesus Christ honored. You won't find him lift, lifted up and exalted. If you go to most Jewish people today and you, you want to talk to them about Jesus, they, they they don't want to hear it. They they don't know about. It. They don't they don't want him. They see him as being someone that, that's not really the, the the true Messiah and Savior. Thank God for for Jews that have come to know Christ as Savior. Uh, jews can come to the lord they can surrender to christ and take him but they sadly many don't and and the question that comes up here well if if the jews don't believe many of them don't believe the fact that they don't believe what does that tell us then that god's not faithful does that tell us that god's wrong if israel is god's chosen people and he's got a special plan and program for them and now most of Israel's turned against God, the, the, did God fail? Is God unfaithful? Is God's word wrong? Are His promises really to, to, to be dependent upon? If that's the situation, is the problem with God? That's the question that's laid out there. You know, If God's going to work through Israel, supposed to work through them and work in them and most of israel is not believing in christ today has god failed paul gives an answer here he says well their unbelief make the faithfulness of god without effect and he states in verse four he says certainly not certainly not and the term that he uses the greek term is Meganoito. This is the strongest Greek negative expression that there is in the entire Greek language. It's translated here in the, the New King James Version. is certainly not. If you've got the old King James Version, it's probably God forbid. Uh, the, what it means is may it never be that you might find in some translation. And it has the idea of impossibility. In fact, if you see that certainly not there, you could actually right, right above that, impossible. When man fails, when man is unfaithful, that in no way, shape, or form affects the reliability or the faithfulness of God. We find that God's perfect, God's faithfulness is absolutely perfect. We find that uh, well, sometimes people will use that excuse about about christians and you try to share the gospel with them and say well i know this guy over here that you know he went to church all the time and he professed to be a christian and he was the most crooked guy in town when it came to business you just couldn't trust him i bought a car from him one time and and i drove down the road and it fell apart and he wouldn't make it right and and so many people can point to, to hypocrites people that maybe profess to be christians but they don't demonstrate any of the fruit of the spirit they profess to be Christians, but there's no christ like this in their lives. They profess to be Christians, but they live like the devil. Is that a reality? Uh, that's not something I'm making up, right? Have you ever seen that? If you're awake, shake your head yeah if you've seen that. Let me know you're awake out there and alive. Good. That's a reality, isn't it? It's a reality. It is a fact. But let me tell you this. The fact that there are false professors those who would profess to be christians and they live like the devil in no way affects the faithfulness of god where's the problem in a situation like that is the problem with god no the problem is in these people that are falsely professing something that is not true I heard somebody say one time, if the hypocrite's closer to God than you are, then you're in trouble. And somebody's a hypocrite. That doesn't affect the faithfulness of Almighty God. And it doesn't mean God will not keep all of His promises. It doesn't mean that God will not be true to what He said. And it also doesn't mean the Scriptures written through the Jews are 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 false we go over to second peter chapter one and it says over there that men were moved, holy men of god were moved by the spirit it was the spirit of god who's the ultimate author of the scriptures the fact that men fail professing christians fail even real christians fail right you ever fail the fact that we fail we falter Does that mean God's not faithful? Does that mean God can't be depended upon? Not for one minute does it mean that. God is absolutely faithful, and we can count on Him. We can depend upon Him perfectly. And we find that it doesn't matter how many hypocrites can be pointed out, the inconsistency of somebody doesn't excuse anyone else of their accountability to God. We find that uh, there's when it comes down to the matter of truth, the fact that someone refuses to believe the truth does not change the truth. I got a phone call 13 years ago, early on a Saturday morning, and my mother was on the other end of the line, and she said, your dad died. And you know what? I didn't believe it first thing went through my mind that can't be true that can't I just saw him the day before we played golf the day before he walked 18 holes of golf the, the Friday the day before that we had lunch together that day he was fine when I left Cadillac and drove back down here to Carroll and I've got all these things going through my mind telling me this can't be true You know, how could things turn around so quickly, and how could he be gone, that like that? And and I fought against it. I didn't believe it. You know what? It didn't change the truth. My dad was gone. Thank the Lord he knew Christ as a Savior, knows Christ as a Savior, and he's in glory. But, you know, fighting against the truth doesn't change what the truth is. And somebody can say, well, the fact that there are hypocrites means that you can't depend on what God says. What God says can't be true. Well, you know what? The hypocrites don't change the fact that God is true. The fact that what we can hear from God is absolutely true. It says in verse 3, Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And and here's the answer. Certainly not. Oito, there it is again. Indeed, let, let God be true. Consider God is being true. And every man a liar. If anybody's saying anything that is in conflict with what God says in His Word, who, can, who should you believe? What God says is true. And other people are, are liars. Even if everybody in the entire world is a liar, God's still true. And, and if we can get back to what God really says in His Word there's truth there you know the our, our world wants to change things today they want to say things that god called sin aren't really sin well, you know what they are sin god hasn't changed they want to say well there there is no hell now there can't be a hell that would people would go to well you know what the bible says the bible says there is a hell the bible says there is a lake of fire The Bible says that that wide is the road that leads there as well. And anybody whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, who knows the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, their Savior, they're going to spend all of eternity there. God's true. You can believe God and, and what he says and hang on to that. What a great thing that is. Does the unbelief of some Jews bring into question the faithfulness of God? No, not really. God's faithfulness is perfect. Even if everybody on the earth is a liar, you can depend upon God and what he says. You can hang on to that. The last argument laid out here, argument concerning the judgment of the Jews. The, uh, verse 5 says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? What's he talking about here? How does the unrighteousness of the Jews show the righteousness of god well it shows the righteousness of god because god judges sin god judges rebellion against him god judges rejection of his son the lord jesus christ and uh, we find that that's what it's talking about here we find it in keeping his word by pouring out his wrath upon rebellion, sin, and rejection, it shows the righteousness of God. You go clear back to the Garden of Eden, and we find that God told Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit of this one tree. The day you eat of that fruit, you'll surely die. Well, what happened? They ate the fruit, and what happened? They, they, they died they be they died spiritually and they began dying physically and eventually did have their spirits move clear out of their bodies. God kept his word he showed his righteousness in judging sin same thing when he sent the flood in Noah's day same thing when he he sent the, uh, the pestilence and the the chastening upon Israel whenever they got off into idolatry that was all showing the righteousness of God imagine for you a moment a man who who's running for the office of judge They're, they want to be elected as a judge man or woman running for that office and they say if i if i get elected to that position i will be tough on crime i'll be hard on crime well imagine that person gets elected and then somebody has robbed you and they are brought in, and they robbed you for a lot of money. Maybe they mugged you and beat the tar out of you and everything like that. And they're brought in before the judge, and the judge says, well, don't ever do that again. Get out of here. What are you going to think? That's one lousy judge. That judge didn't keep her or his word, did they? Does that sound like being tough on crime and being just? And right on the other hand, if the judge says, "All right, you beat that man over there you you stole from them you, you invaded their home you've, you've got to first of all make restitution you've got to pay back what you stole and you're going to spend five years in jail to think about doing now how's that sound to you? hey that judge is is He's a good judge. He's a fair judge. He didn't sentence him to life in prison, but he sentenced him to five years. He's fair. He's righteous. He's just in what he's doing. That's the picture here. When God judges sin, he's showing his righteousness. When he judges the sinfulness and the unrighteousness of people, he's showing his righteousness, the fact that he keeps his word. What Paul's anticipating here is somebody that says, okay, if God's using this unrighteous person over here to show his righteousness, then the fact that I've been unrighteous is not my fault. It's, it's God's fault. You know, God made me do it. God made me be unrighteous so he could show his righteousness by, by punishing me. That's the argument that's being put forth here. I can see you're not buying it. Paul didn't buy it either, but that's exactly what they're, they're throwing out there. People questioning the character of God. In fact, sometimes people will even do that today, though, won't they? If they've got particular sin in their life, sometimes, well, well, God made me that way, so it must be okay. Huh. Huh. Fact of the matter is, you and I are all born sinners, right? We've all got a sin nature, we've all got a sinful bent. And it all happened because Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. And we're all born with that basic sin nature and that bent towards doing the wrong thing. And we desperately need a Savior. And and that's not God's fault. That's our fault. Who's responsible for your sin and mine? We're responsible for it, not God. And this argument here in in Romans 3 is saying, God's responsible. Why should He judge me for the fact that I've I've done wrong here when when he made me do wrong or he let me do wrong, it's all God's fault. That doesn't quite do it. In fact, it pushes it to a ridiculous question they throw out. Well, then maybe we should just do wrong so that God can really show his wrong. The more wrong that I do, the more God will show how righteous he is. A similar argument is thrown out in Romans chapter 5 a little later on. Well, if God saves us by his grace, and where sin abounds, grace superabounds then maybe I should just, the more I sin, the more God will be able to show his grace to me, and that'll be great for God. Well, that's not what's accepted over in Romans chapter 5, and it's also not accepted here. Uh, there's, uh, we find that there's question thrown on God's character here. And there's an implication. When somebody starts raising questions like that, Paul goes on and says in verse 8, Why do they not, why, why not say, Let us do evil, that good may come? As Paul was slanderously reported as saying, he says, When people start throwing out arguments like that, their condemnation is just. When people start trying to make God responsible for their sin, their condemnation is just. In fact, the first step, The first step, really, in getting saved is recognizing that we're responsible for our sin and that we need a Savior, right? Until you realize you're lost, until you realize that you're a sinner in the eyes of God, until you realize you've rebelled against God, you've not lived a perfect life that would be necessary in order for you to be pleasing to Him. When we recognize that we've fallen short, that's the first step to coming to Christ. Who goes to a doctor? Somebody that's sick, right? Who's going to come to Christ to to take him as their Savior? Somebody that recognizes that they're a sinner. Who needs a Savior? There's a few conclusions we can pull from what we've looked at here this morning. First of all, it is a tremendous benefit to have access to the Scriptures, to tell us about Jesus the Savior, isn't it? And to tell us about salvation by grace. What a great benefit that is. I am so thankful. My folks bought me a Bible for the first time when I think I was four years old. I couldn't even read it. But I got that Bible back then. And uh, boy, what a special thing it is. I've been taken to church and taught the Bible. We had the Bible read in our homes. I thank God that, uh, for the opportunity to study God's word. And many of you are in similar situations like that. And all of you are here this morning. And we're talking about God's Word. We're talking about what God says. God says you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. Isn't, aren't you glad you know that today? Man, that's the greatest knowledge you can have. When you got that knowledge, it's great responsibility. If you know the truth, you better respond to it. We find the unbelief of man does nothing to nullify the faithfulness of God. God's true, even if every person in this room, every man on earth is a liar, we can still count on God. still depend on Him. And God is absolutely righteous in judging Jews or anybody else who rejects Jesus Christ. We are responsible for our own sin. God didn't make us sinners. God doesn't make us sin. We choose to sin. and, And we're sinners by nature. But it's because we're born as part of a fallen race. Man's fully responsible for his own sin, but here's the good news. God is wondrously loving and taking our judgment that we deserve on himself. That's what Christmas is all about. What What did the angels tell the shepherd? We got good news for you. There's born for you this day in the city of David what? A Savior who's Christ the Lord. Those shepherds desperately needed a Savior. Every one of us in this room today desperately needs a Savior. God provided that Savior. God Himself took upon Himself the form of a man. He became a man by means of the virgin birth for the prospect of going to the cross of Calvary. And there Jesus took the judgment that we deserve. You see, God doesn't just forget about sin. God always judges sin. God always has to judge sin. Good news is, for anybody that's trusting in Christ, Jesus took our judgment of our sin upon himself. See, our penalty's been paid by what he did on the cross of Calvary. This is the glory of the Christmas message. The Savior has been born. And the arguments of men do not change or minimize one little bit. This glorious Christmas message. Unto you is born this day, almost 2,000 years ago now, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you never responded to that message and taken Christ to be your Savior, I would plead with you to do it today. Don't worry about hypocrites around you or, or people that you've known that claim to be Christians and didn't really live that way. The only thing is matter, what, what about you and God? How are you with God? Are you a hypocrite? Probably are. What you need is a Savior. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the great news is we also get the privilege to share this great message with other people. We can't bring in world peace, can we? But we can help bring God's peace to people around us as we share the gospel with them. Heavenly Father, thank you for a glorious Savior. We thank you for being faithful. We thank you we can depend upon what you have said, what you've recorded for us in the word of God. And Father, we pray today, if there's anybody with us that's never surrendered their heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ, they would see today the Spirit of God would show them. They need a Savior. And we pray they'd surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior their life today. And Father, we pray you'd help us to be so excited about what you've done in us that you'd give us the opportunity to share this great message with other people you bring across our path as well. Help us to share it with them. Glorify yourself in us, Lord, and through us. We pray in the Savior's name. Amen. Sing as we close. Go tell it on.